We're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 this morning as we continue with our Kingdom of Priests series. A few years ago, I was at one of those indoor trampoline parks with my son. Uh, One of those places, you know, where you can jump and bounce and climb the walls and all sorts of fun stuff. And so we paid the fee. We went inside. You know, I signed the lengthy, uh, scary waiver that you sign every time you go into one of those places. And uh, he began to jump and to play and to have fun. And I sort of sat down on a bench to watch him because I was too old and too big to play uh, in this place. And uh, I watched him for a few minutes, but then after, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes, uh, Samuel came and he just sat down on the bench with me. And I said, hey, aren't you going to go play anymore? And he said, no, I'm not. And I said, well, why not? Because uh, you've only played for 10 minutes, and at this point, it's roughly like $14 per minute of fun that I have spent on this place, and I want to lower that number, right? So uh, if you can just go play and have fun, why aren't you playing anymore? And he said, too many rules. He said, no matter what I do, they tell me it's against the rules. And I said, well, that, that can't be the, the case necessarily. I mean, look, this place is a, is a fun house of jumping and playing. He goes, I don't know, man, everything I do, they tell me I shouldn't do. So it's just not even worth it anymore. I actually went and I researched what some of the rules are after that conversation. So there were a lot of rules. I'm sure they all have good reasons, right? You're not allowed to sit down or lie down on the trampolines. Always jump and land on two feet, never on one foot, never land on the padding, never land on your head. Only one person per jumping surface. No double bouncing. You must be in control of your body at all times, which I got to say... For a nine-year-old boy, that's an impossibility, right? But the rule that actually got me was this one, uh, pushing, wrestling, tackling, running, racing, playing tag, and horseplay of any kind is strictly forbidden. Like, well, yeah, what is there left, right? What is there left to do? The entire concept of the place is horseplay. That's it, right? So, so you might as well just go home if those rules are strictly enforced. See, what my son was feeling, I think, is something that we often feel in the face of rules and regulations. It was this feeling that the rules are designed to prohibit my joy, right? The rules are designed so that I will get the minimum amount of fun and happiness out of my life at this moment. And I say that because my guess is that at times... We've read the Bible and felt like that, right? There have probably been times in your life, I know there have been for me, I think back to when I was in high school and college and I would read the scripture and I would read all of the things that God said about how we ought to conduct ourselves as Christians. So there are rules about what you say and don't say in the scripture. There are rules about sex There are rules about eating and drinking. There are rules about integrity and not cheating and telling the truth. There are even rules about what you think and what you look at, right? So it's easy to read them and go, now man, everybody else around me seems to thrive when they step outside the rules. So why does the scripture provide all of these prohibitions? You shall not, you shall not or you shall. 
What is the value of rules? This morning we're going to look at the best known passage of rules in the entire scripture. It's the Ten Commandments. My guess is that some of you, you could name them all, one through ten, from memory. But if you're familiar with any rules from the Scripture, it's probably these rules, right? And you may have mixed feelings when you read a list like this. My guess is that some of them you think are great, right? So you read, do not murder, and you go, that's a good rule, right? If you feel really hemmed in by do not murder, get help, right? But then there are other rules on the list that you may go, I don't understand that one. Honor your father and mother. Well, what if my father and my mother are not particularly worthy of honor? Why do I got to honor them? Don't covet anything that belongs to anybody else. Don't look over at your neighbor's house or your neighbor's car or your neighbor's spouse and say, I want that instead of what God has given. Don't do that. And you go, why? What's the harm in wishing for things I don't have if somebody else has them? Right? And so we look at a list like the Ten Commandments and we go, why does God constrain our behavior? Right? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And here's what we're going to see. God never makes a rule arbitrarily. God never makes a rule arbitrarily. If God has created a standard, a boundary, we can trust it's for our good. Because he loves us. Because he wants us to know him and understand who he is and represent him. In other words, God's boundaries are not designed simply to prohibit our enjoyment in life. But instead, God's boundaries are designed so that we can experience the maximum amount of enjoyment and freedom under the reign of a benevolent king. Right, what we're going to find this morning is just like we'll see with Israel, the problem with God's rules is not actually God's rules. Okay, when we read rules in the scripture and we go, I don't want to do that. I don't like that one. The problem is not with God's rules. The problem is actually with us. That we have hearts and minds that are prone to rebel against God. Right, so that at every stage in our lives, our desire in our hearts all too often is to look at the boundaries that God has set in place and say, I got to step across this. Right, it is written within us because we're sinners. Just this morning, as I was preparing, I was sitting in one of the rooms down the hall, and there was a microwave, and on the microwave, there was a sign that said, do not use the microwave and the printer at the same time. And I got to tell you, something in me thought, what if I did? <laughs> right? I cannot tell you how tempted I was to push that boundary. What's going to happen? Right? There's something in us that says, I got to break the law. That something is what the scripture calls sin. But what we're going to see as we look at this passage is both the, the, the joy that comes from God's boundaries, but also the solution to this problem I'm describing, which is that on my own, I am going to drift away from God. In fact, not even drift away from God. I'm going to run away from God. I'm going to jump over his fences, believing that my way is best and find myself in a world of hurt. And so as we look at the Ten Commandments this morning, 
I want us to understand some realities about the rules that God sets up and then how he's going to solve this problem that exists in our heart that we want to disobey the rules. The first thing I want to point out this morning is this, that God's rules are rooted in relationship. God's rules are rooted in relationship. If you've got your Bible with me, with you, follow along with me as we read from Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 1 of Exodus 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people, to the Lord. So let me give you a little bit of background in case you've forgotten uh, how we got to this point. Remember, God says, I carried you on eagle's wings out of Egypt, right? So a few weeks ago, we talked about the plagues on Egypt. We talked about how the people of Israel, they walked through the Red Sea. God parted it in the middle and they walked right through. And then the Egyptian army was drowned in the sea and they are set free from slavery, right? So now they're in the wilderness and Dusty talked last week did a great job talking with us about how they then, they, they're in the wilderness and they start complaining immediately. Where's the food? Where's the water? God, you let us out here to let us die. And God provides for them in the wilderness, right? So here we are three months after they've left Egypt. And they're standing at Mount Sinai. And if you remember, this is the location where God had originally appeared to Moses in the desert. And he said, hey, Moses, here's the sign that I'm with you. After you've led the people out of Egypt, you know what's going to happen. You're going to come together and you're going to worship at this mountain. Right? So here they are. The promise to Moses has been fulfilled. They're worshiping at Mount Sinai. And then God comes to them and he says this. He says, because we have a relationship, right? Because you know me and I know you and I have carried you out of Egypt because of that. I want to make a covenant with you, all right? And and a covenant is simply a fancy way of saying we have an agreement together. There are obligations upon you, and there are obligations or responsibilities on me, right? When we get married, we make a covenant with our spouse. I will do certain things. You will do certain things. That's why we make vows, right? So God says, here's the deal. Here's the covenant. He says, I am going to do something for you And that is, I'm going to make you my special people. I'm going to gather you together as a nation. And I'm going to make you, he says, my treasured possession. That is, amongst all the nations, people will know that Israel's God is Yahweh. 
and I want to make you a kingdom of priests. I want to bring you into this land where you will live in peace and security and represent me to the nation so that people from every nation can eventually come to know me. And he says, you're into the bargain is I simply want you to obey me. I want you to obey what I tell you to do. Right? And so what we see from the beginning is that the law flows from a relationship, right? Notice how eager the Israelites are to obey. When God is about to give them the laws, they don't go, ah, rules. What do they do? They go, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do it right away. Why? Because they know that this is a God who has great things in store for them. You see that? They know that this is a God who says, if you will obey me, your future will be bright because I'm going to take care of you. Let me give you another rules context that involves also my son. My son uh, takes taekwondo at a local martial arts studio here in town. Right? And at, at a martial arts studio, if you've ever been to one, there are rules. Right? In fact, there's a lot of them. You have to, first of all, wear a particular uniform. Right? You've got to wear a particular thing in a particular way. When they get in there, they have to stand at attention until the teacher releases them. Everything he or she tells them to do, they have to respond with yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. Right? They can only hit what they tell them to hit or kick what they tell them to kick when they tell them to hit or kick it. And yet what's interesting is I almost never see a kid in that Taekwondo school rebel against the rules. Right? You ever tried to get a nine-year-old boy to wear a uniform? But man, he puts it on with anticipation a couple times a week. Why? Why is he so eager to follow the rules? Because he knows that the guy in charge wants good things for him, right? You follow the rules, you're going to get to break boards with your fist. (laughs) You follow the rules, you're going to get to kick a bag. You follow the rules, you're going to get to spar with other students, right? You don't follow the rules, bad things will happen. You might have to sit out, you might have to leave. You follow the rules, great things are going to happen. They know he's a benevolent leader. And so the rules make sense in the context of that relationship. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments will set the tone for all the rest of the law. They're going to end up being a summary, basically, of everything that follows throughout the rest of the law of Moses. But where it begins is God says, I want to know you, and I want you to know me, and I want you to trust I have good things in store for you. This is why God sets boundaries. You and I are made to know him and to represent him. That's why we're made. God made us in his image. Says that in Genesis. And because we're made in his image, we are designed to do the things that reflect him and not the things that deviate from his plan. We're not designed for sin. Sin will never bring us the joy that we think it will bring us because it separates us from our purpose in life to know God and to reflect him. And so God says to the Israelites, this is what I want for you. I want the best for you out of this relationship. And then he's going to go on and he's going to give them these commands. And what we're going to see is that these rules reveal the character 
of God, right? God's rules tell us a lot about who God is, right? Because again, the purpose of the rules is that we can know who God is and reflect Him. God's rules reveal His character. So some of you may have rules at your house, right? You, you may even have them on the wall. There is wall art that you can buy where you can list the rules of your house. I found a couple of examples this week. So rules of the home. If you open it, close it. You turn it on, turn it off. If you unlock it, lock it. If you value it, take care of it. If you make a mess, clean it up. If it belongs to someone else, get permission to use it, all caps. If you move it, take it out. Take it out, put it back when you're done with it. If you break it, report it. If you borrow it, return it. If it's not yours, don't touch it. If you don't know, ask, right? Now you read that, and who wrote those? An exhausted parent of small children. I mean, you know, right? You know who wrote these. Some person was like, I'm tired of saying it. I'm engraving it on metal and I'm placing it in your face every day. Let me give you another set of rules. Grandma's house rules. (laughs) Laugh, giggle, snuggle, play all the time. Kitchen open 24-7, sleepovers welcome, nothing but fun. Always more cookies. Dessert comes first. Storytelling, hugs and kisses. Expect to be spoiled. Remember, I love you. These rules came first. And then grandma sent them home to mom and dad. (laughs) Where they wrote the other rules. You read the rules and you know about the lawgiver, right? That's what the Ten Commandments are. You read them and you understand something about the God who gave the rules. The Ten Commandments are divided into two sets of rules. There's one through four, and then there's five through ten. So that in the New Testament, when Jesus is asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Instead of picking out one of the Ten Commandments, I mean, the Ten Commandments were typically uh, considered the biggies, right? Instead of picking out one of them, here's what Jesus says. He summarizes them. He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And what we're going to see is is commandments one through four. That's what they're about. God is saying to the people of Israel and to us, I'm the only one. There's only one God. And what I want you to do is I want you to trust me with your life. I want you to trust me with your land. I want you to trust me with your time. And here's why. Because I am a good God who is generous and kind and will lavish grace to generation after generation after generation. If you'll just trust me, if you'll just trust me. He says, this is who I am. I'm the only one. So you love God first. And then Jesus would go on and he'd say this, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And he's right. That's one through four and five through ten. We're going to look at him here in just a minute. He says, once you know who God is and you worship God, that's going to dramatically affect how you treat other people. And that's what commandments five through ten are about. I get this relationship right first, and then I work on these relationships second. So let me, let me walk through quickly all of the ten commandments Commandments you're probably familiar with, at least on some level, but just in case you've forgotten. Very first one, Exodus chapter 20, it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods 
before me. Literally, no other gods before my face. Okay, now what God is saying is not this. He's not saying, look, you can have a whole lot of gods as long as you make sure that I'm the best one, the most important one. That's not what he's getting at. Essentially what he's saying is you're not supposed to have any other gods anywhere near me. Get them out of my face. I don't want to see them. Why? Because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of where? The land of Egypt. Remember what we talked about. What were the plagues? The plagues were a judgment upon the gods of the nation of Egypt. And God says, look, I want you to look back. You want to follow those gods, you'll end up like Egypt. I'm the only one. From the very beginning, he says, this is an exclusive relationship. That's why later on, marriage is it's going to be used in the Ten Commandments, in fact, as an illustration of an exclusive relationship. Why is marriage meant to be exclusive without others involved in the equation? It's because that represents the faithfulness of God and the exclusivity of God's relationship with his people. So he begins with the biggie. I'm the only one. And then he says this, you're not supposed to make yourself an idol. Look at verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, God is not saying that if if your dad made an idol, you're going to be punished for what your dad did. Instead, what he is getting at is this. As a nation, the sins of the previous generation are going to come down on the heads of the next generation. Some of that is just natural consequences, right? If a previous generation walks away from God, that's going to have consequences for the entire nation. We see that with Israel. We see that with our own country. But he says, here's what's going to happen is if you choose to obey me, uh, it's not uh, just three or four generations that I'll lavish my love on. He says, I want to lavish my unconditional love on thousands of generations, generation after generation after generation after generation. That's the kind of God that you're serving. So he says, don't make an idol. When we think about idols in the modern world, we tend to think, how could people be so stupid Right? How could they make little statues and bow down and believe that statues would save them? This is probably similar to what we think about when we think about idols. I don't know how well you can see this, but this is from uh, a real seminary. This was about a month ago. Uh, they posted this on Twitter. It said, today in chapel, we confessed to plants together. We held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Right now, I read that, and I think the only thing I need to confess to my plants is you're going to die, and it's going to be my fault, (laughs) right? This is what we think of, right? Even, even people who didn't follow Jesus saw this and they're like, whoa, what are you doing? You're worshiping plants, right? That's what we think of when we think of idolatry, and it is idolatry, right? But in the ancient world, the truth is that idolatry went much deeper than this. Here was the deal. Remember, the gods of Egypt, it wasn't just about the statue. They believed that that idol actually carried a piece of the presence of their God, 
Right, so, so if I worship this God, then I place this symbol in his temple. And what I do is I do rituals to appease the God. I'm saying to this God, look, here's a, live, or a symbol of the, the God that I worship. So they would feed these idols, right? Or they would, they would participate in elaborate rituals. You know, in the story of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel, you see, see the gods of Baal cutting and slashing themselves to get their God's attention. They would engage in all kinds of rituals. But the idea is, if I do it, the God will do something for me. It was a very transactional relationship, right? We like that. If I put the right inputs into my life, into my gods, into the things I care about, if I put the right inputs, I work hard enough at my job, the output will be God will give me enough money, right? If I approach my family just right, the output will be they will treat me well, right? If I eat the right things and I jog enough to stay healthy, but not so much that I'm unhappy, God will bless me with long life. The idol represents their hopes and dreams and fears, and they say we can have it apart from trusting in a God we can't control, because you can't control Yahweh. So he says, don't even make an image, not even an image of God that you bow down before and worship. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And then he's going to go on. He says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, when we think about this, we tend to think about using God's name as a curse word, as people often do in, in today's world, and certainly that would be included. The idea of vain is don't use it in a way that is flippant or false, in a way that it's not intended to be used, right? But it also could mean uh, to swear on a Bible when you have no intention of following through, right? So the idea is I'm using God's name in a way that it's not intended to be used, in a way that diminishes the respect that I have for him. See, the way you use a person's name says a lot about how you value that person, doesn't it? Some of you know that from family relationships. You know that from friendships, right? I can say your name in a way that indicates love and respect, or I can say your name that indicates contempt. The way we say a name indicates how we value it. That's at the core. And then he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Incidentally, the only one that isn't repeated directly in the New Testament, right? But the concept is there. The idea is simply this, that every seven days, they were to set aside a day. And the idea of that day was not just a vacation, right? The idea of that day was not just to rest, although Sabbath does mean to rest or to stop. But the idea of that day was this, that one day a week we pause and we focus on worshiping God. And we trust that if we don't work all seven days, God will still meet our needs. Right? See, at the heart of Sabbath is do I trust God? At the heart of all these first four is, do I trust God? And and can I trust God? And God is going to say to them, absolutely you can. And we'll see how these commands, they highlight God's character. That he's generous. And he's holy. And he's faithful to keep his promises. And so the first four say, "I, I want you to trust me alone. And then he says, once you learn to worship and trust me, that's going to turn to how you treat those around you. And so there are six commandments that follow. 
you shall honor your father and your mother. Right? This relates to authority. What's the first authority most of us have in our lives? It's our moms and our dads. Right? And in fact, the scripture indicates, and I think it's right, that, that cultures and nations that stop honoring their parents and honoring those in authority over them, cultures and nations that do that become violent cultures, immoral cultures, and cultures adrift. It's interesting, over the weekend, I was watching some TV shows on Netflix, and all of a sudden it struck me, I was like, every dad, I mean 100% of the dads in shows that I saw They were either clueless or malicious. They were either a doofus or an abuser. And I thought, man, that's the way our culture sees fathers. And what happens is that's the way fathers begin to act and see themselves, right? So it's not just that art reflects life. Life begins to reflect art. So I don't honor my parents. My parents don't honor me. And a culture descends. So God says, I don't want that for you. I want you to understand that to honor your authority, including the first authority you're given in your life, your mom and your dad, that honors me because I've given them to you. So he says, honor your father and your mother. Secondly, you shall not, literally it says you shall not kill, but but the word here used for kill is almost always used in the context of illegal taking of life. It's not a word that is used uh, when we're talking about war. It's not typically a word that's used when we're talking about capital punishment, except for one time. It is a word that means to murder. You shall not murder. Why? Because God is the giver of life. God gave you your life. God led you out of Egypt. You have no right to take what God has given. You have no right to take somebody else's life when God is a giver of life. You shall not commit adultery. What is adultery about? Well, it's only partly about sex. Adultery really at its core is is about what, what we call it in our culture, infidelity, un faithfulness, right? The idea is this. God says, I have made an exclusive commitment to you and you to me, and I want that represented in the way you treat other people, that if you make a promise, you stick to that promise, even if it hurts, even if it's hard. You think that keeping his promises to the people of Israel didn't result in pain as God watched those people deviate from his desires and run away from him, and yet he keeps his promise to the thousandth generation. And so he says, in the small areas of your life, he says, don't commit adultery because I want you to be faithful like I'm faithful. I want you to be loyal like I'm loyal. He says, you shall not steal. Why? Because God is a generous God. You trust God to give you what you need. You don't take it from somebody else. That undermines trust and it denies that you trust God. You shall not bear false witness. What that means is don't, you don't go into a courtroom setting especially and say somebody stole something or killed somebody or committed adultery when they didn't do it. You don't set people up. But it's going to begin to apply more broadly 
to all forms of lying as you move through the law. The idea is what you say needs to be true. And again, why? Why are we called to tell the truth? Because God is a truth teller. God always tells the truth. He says, you want to be my people? You want to be a kingdom of priests? You want to represent me to the nations? Then you let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's the way Jesus would later interpret this. He's going to go, you know what? You shouldn't have to swear by the sun or the moon or the heavens or whatever it is or by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Let what you say be true because God is true. And then the last one, you shall not covet. Essentially, you shall not covet anybody's anything, right? You're not to covet their, back then, instead of cars, right? They had a donkey, right? You don't look and go, I wish I had a better donkey like Jedediah's donkey, right? Wish I had a better house. Wish I had a better spouse. I wish I had their life. Why, why is that, right? This is a hard one. It was a hard one, by the way, for the Apostle Paul, and we'll talk about this in a minute. This is hard for everybody. And the reason is because I can look at the others and go, okay, like I, I did okay honoring my parents. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing anything. I haven't gone into court to bear false witness. I'm doing okay. But then you get to this last one and you go, I, uh, I've done that one. Right? I've looked at somebody else's life and I've said, I want what they have rather than what I have. Right? And the problem is this, that Jesus will say, all of the others spring from that. Adultery springs from lust. What is lust? It is when I look at somebody else's spouse. And I say, I want them instead of what God has given. Murder springs from hatred in my heart that says, I need to take this person's life because if I don't, I'm going to lose something in my own life. And I want what they have. That's what James would say. You covet and you, you, covet and you do not have. That's why you commit murder. All of these sins spring from in here. So God says, these commandments, they reflect my character. What kind of a God is God? He's a God that's holy, set apart, unlike any of the other gods, worthy of an exclusive relationship. He's a God who's generous. He says, I'm going to lavish on you blessing and goodness and life if you'll trust me and obey me. And he's a God who's faithful. He's a God who keeps his promises, a word that is used in the context of the Ten Commandments that will get used all throughout the Bible to refer to God, at least in the Old Testament. It's this word, hesed, hesed. It basically, it often is translated loving kindness, right? And you see it here in this passage that God lavishes his hesed, his loving kindness on generation after generation after generation. That's the loyal love of God. God says, what I want for you, and this is what he wants for us. He says, I want you to understand who I am. I am a God that wants the best for you because I made you. I know what is best for you. And what is best for you is to listen to me and to obey me and to follow the rules I've put in place. And you can trust me that you'll see my character of kindness and love as you obey. So God's rules are rooted in relationship. God's rules reveal his character, right? But here's, here's the problem we talked about at the beginning. God's rules reveal our character as well. God's rules reveal our character. Again, notice how the Israelites, man, they are so eager to obey, 
Right? They're like, everything that you say, we will do. Give us the contract. We'll sign on the dotted line today. Right? And so Moses goes back up to the mountain. He tells God. And then God gives Moses the rest of the law. They come back down. And they initiate this covenant. Right? They make sacrifices. Moses sprinkles the blood on all the people. And they commit. They say, we will follow God. We will do it. We can do it. But they don't. They don't. I was thinking about this this week. When I was uh, just graduated from college, I lived in a house with four other uh, young guys in college, just out of college, and it was a rental house, and the place was just, I mean, it was a mess. Nobody took the responsibility to clean anything, ever, for weeks on end, right? So you would walk into the kitchen and it was like old meals from days before, grime on the floor, grime on the counters. It was a health hazard. I'm ashamed to admit this, but there were critters moving in to the house because of our negligence. So one day I finally said, okay, I'm going to fix this. And so I went to the store. I tracked down the cleaning aisle, which I had never seen before. It was delightful, right? Went in and I bought all of this cleaning stuff. And I came home and I spent four hours in that kitchen and I scrubbed it and I scrubbed it and I got it looking as good as it could possibly look given the state of it. And it was clean. And the guys came in, they're like, we love this. Let's keep it like this forever. Right? So we sat down in the living room and we said, we shall make a covenant to keep the kitchen clean. If something is dirty, clean it up. If you make a meal, clean it up. Sweep the floor at least once a week. Maybe mop it at least every couple of weeks. We will keep it clean. And we put our hands in the middle. All that we have spoken, we will do. And you know the rest of the story. <laughs> it was clean for about a week. Because what we wanted to do, we lacked the ability to follow through. Really, what we lacked was the care factor. We just didn't really care that much. It wasn't really that important. Right, and that's what we see with the nation of Israel. Really, it's remarkable. They, they, Moses comes down, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, and they go, yep, all God said we will do. He goes back up on the mountain. Before he finishes writing it all down, they have made an idol at the bottom of the mountain. They have a golden calf, and they they pull it out and they go, this is our God who led us out of Egypt. And you, and you read it and you go, what are you talking about? Were you not listening? Did, I mean, they can still see the presence of God on the mountain, right? Moses is still up there and God's presence is still shining forth. And they're like, uh, I don't know if Moses is coming back, Aaron. Make us a golden cow. And that begins a process in the, in the life of the nation of Israel where they disobey and they disobey, and they disobey. Right? It's called sin. And the problem that they have, really it's the same problem we have, right? Years ago, I, I was on a vacation with a couple of buddies. This was also in my 20s. We went to a museum, and we went downstairs into this museum, and we were kind of the only people around in this exhibit at the bottom floor of this museum. And there were signs, do not cross the barrier and play with the equipment. It was a museum dedicated to like technological advances. And so there were like old diggers and um, bulldozers and things like that. And there was this sign and, and I saw it and I thought, 
it wouldn't have occurred to me to play with the equipment until I saw the sign. We looked around and I said, let's do it, right? So we crossed the barrier. I have a picture that I'm not going to show, mostly for legal reasons this morning, uh, of me sitting in the equipment and I'm playing with it, with the sign. Don't do it. What is that? It springs from a heart of rebellion that's in all of us. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. In other words, God's rules aren't bad. God's rules are good, but he says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. What is he saying? He's not saying that the law is bad. In fact, he says the law is really good. It reflects God's character. It reflects what God wants from us. But as soon as I see the law, I go, man, that's a boundary I got to cross. And the problem, honestly, is not even that I can't obey. The problem is I won't. I don't want to. Right, Moses and Joshua both would say to the people of Israel, look, the law is not that complicated. It's not way up there in heaven where you can't reach it. It's not underneath the ground where you can't get to it or at the bottom of the sea. It's right there. God met with you. He spoke to you. Look at these commands. They're not that complex. Don't kill people. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal stuff. Worship one God alone. I mean, they're not that hard. But I don't want to. Because I'm a sinner. And so I find myself in a place of opposition to God. See, the issue is the law itself actually uh, never provided for them eternal life. That wasn't the point. The point was to highlight something. To highlight this. That you are a sinner. And you need a solution to this problem. Or you're going to be alienated from God. Not just today or tomorrow, but, but forever. Right? It's, it's not obeying the law that brings them eternal life. The law, in fact, reveals that you can't get eternal life by obeying the law. The other problem with the law was this. It, it didn't provide any means to obey. It said, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Ten commandments. Nine shall nots and one shall. Right? Don't, don't, don't. Don't, don't, don't. Don't, don't, don't. And do. Honor your father and mother. But it doesn't really say how to do it. And so what happens is we try and we try and we find that we fail. Because we're sinners. So what's the solution? And here's where Jesus comes in. As we move throughout the scripture, we're going to see these promises that God's going to make to the nation of Israel essentially to say, look, even though you've disobeyed me, I'm still going to save you. Even though you ran away, I'm not going to break my covenant with you. Even though you deserve destruction, I'm going to send somebody who's going to save you. Just as Moses walked you through the center of the Red Sea, I'm going to send a Savior who will walk you through the valley of shadow and death. And when you get to the other side, you're never going back. Because he will provide a way once and for all. For you to know me and obey me. Right? So Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. Jesus says, Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. 
He fulfills it on our behalf. He never crosses a boundary that God has set because he is God in the flesh. And then Jesus dies for our failure to obey the law. 1 Peter 2 is going to to paraphrase Isaiah 53, but he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? Because like sheep, we had gone astray. By his wounds, we're healed. God sends his son to provide payment for the judgment that we've earned. And then he rose again. And here's what happens when Jesus rises again, is he's able now to send the Spirit to men and women who trust in him. Because now that our sins have been cleansed forever, the Spirit can live within us. And so the Spirit now empowers us to obey what the law could never provide. The Spirit of God, if you believe in Jesus this morning, the Spirit of God lives within you and provides you the empowerment to obey. Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the question that comes up often is, so do we still obey the Ten Commandments? Are we still under the Ten Commandments, under that law? And the answer is not not exactly, right? Because we're not the nation of Israel. We're not gathered as an ethnic people to live in a particular land. But what's interesting is all but one, I mentioned all but one of these commands is repeated in the New Testament. And the reason why is because they reflect God, right? They are who God is. And the issue is God says, I still want you to be like me. I still want you to obey me. I still want you to be a kingdom of priests. But instead of a governmental system that will regulate you from the outside, you have the all-powerful spirit of God to empower you from the inside out so you can obey. And so you rely on the Spirit where the law could not provide empowerment. So we ask God for His empowerment through the Spirit of God. So we close. We're going to close in worship in just a moment. But let me ask just three questions as we close. One, do you trust that God's rules spring from a place of love? Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that in this room, there are people that you, you read that list and you go, man, I'm, I'm breaking some of them. Maybe not even just the last one, but maybe more than one. In one way or another, you go, you know, and the reason I do it is because my life is difficult or my marriage is hard or my career isn't providing what I wanted it to. And so I step outside the boundaries because I don't know if God really loves me. Do you trust that God's rules spring from love, that the greatest life we will find, not in terms of material wealth, not necessarily in terms of temporal happiness, but the life of relationship with God is found in trusting and obeying Him? Will you trust the Spirit's power to obey Him in those moments of weakness to go to Him? Say, God, you're the God that parted the Red Sea. You provided manna for the Israelites for 40 years. You raised Jesus from the dead. All right, if you could do that, could you give me strength for this moment? 
for this day. And then lastly, will you trust Jesus for forgiveness in those areas where you fall short? If you don't know God through Jesus Christ this morning, the greatest message you could walk away with is this. Although you and I have transgressed his law, I mean, we've done it over and over and over again. I have, you have, we all have in thought and in deed, although we've done that, God is faithful and God is good. And so he sent his son who died for you and who rose again. And for those who know Jesus Christ, we now have the power to obey and we have the assurance of forgiveness and eternal life. It's the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this time and we are grateful for your word. We pray we'd trust you. Father, your rules and boundaries are not meant to restrict or to harm us, but because you love us, you know what's best. And yet, God, we are sinners. We are uh, men and women of rebellion. And so all we can do is call upon and plead for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray we'd trust him. I pray we'd listen to your spirit and obey to help us represent you and follow you as you've called us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.